Chapter twenty four of My Path to Atheism by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty four The Articles. It is a little difficult to make out how far the thirty nine articles of the Church of England, the forty stripes save one, are binding or non binding on her members. There is, of course, no question that they accurately sketch her doctrines and that all her faithful children should accept and believe them with devout piety. But scarcely any dogma can be enforced by law against the laity, the whole spirit of the time being directly antagonistic to such enforcement. But there is no doubt that these articles are both legally and morally binding on the clergy, as they voluntarily submit themselves to them, and declare their full and free belief in them when entering upon the enjoyment of any benefice of the establishment. The royal declaration, prefixed to the Articles, is sweeping and decisive enough. The Articles of the Church of England do contain the true doctrine of the Church of England agreeable to God's word, which we do therefore ratify and confirm, requiring all our loving subjects to continue in the uniform profession thereof, and prohibiting the least difference from the said Articles. After this distinct declaration we are commanded that no man hereafter shall either print or preach to draw the article aside either way, but shall submit to it in the plain and full meaning thereof, and shall not put his own sense or comment to the meaning of the article, but shall take it in the literal and grammatical sense. When any outsider has read this declaration, it becomes to him one of the mysteries of the faith how it is that English gentlemen, honest, honourable men in everything else, manage to accept livings on condition of declaring their full concord with these articles, and then deliberately twist them into non-natural meanings, in order that they may be Roman Catholic or Latitudinarian, according to the opinions of the readers. It may certainly be conceded that the literal and grammatical sense is very often nonsense, and therefore cannot be believed perfectly true. But these honest men have no right to give the weight of their culture and their goodness to bolster up this falling church, whose dogmas they can never accept, except by transfiguring their unreason into reason, and their folly into wisdom. Many who are ignorant and careless and uncultured are kept as nominal members of the Anglican Church because a glamour is thrown over it by the broad church clergy, but their position cannot be too strongly reprobated, so long as they make no effort to alter that in which they do not believe so long as they silently support superstitions which without their aid would long ago have crumbled into ruin. Article 1 deals with faith in the Holy Trinity. Most creeds, certainly all Oriental creeds, cluster around a trinity. The root of the worship of the trinity is struck deep into the nature of man, for it is the worship of the life universal, localised in the giver of the life individual, under the symbol of the phallic emblem the creator of each new existence. The Christian trinity has naturally outgrown the primal barbarism of nature-worship, although preserving the trinity in unity. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, and in unity of this Godhead there be three persons, of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So far have we travelled under the guidance of the Church, and we have before our mind's eye one God, uncorporate, passionless, indivisible, and yet divided into three persons, 
thus implying three individualities, separate the one from the other. Let us remember that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God, but that since there is but one God, the Father is the Son, the Son is the Holy Ghost, and since the Father is the same as the Son, and the Son is the same as the Holy Ghost, the Father and the Holy Ghost must necessarily be identical. Article 2 teaches us that the Son, which is the word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very and eternal God, and of one substance with the Father, took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin of her substance. The Son, that is, the second person in the undivided and indivisible Trinity, begotten from everlasting of the Father. But the Father is one with the Son, for both are God, and yet there is but one God, and therefore Son and Father are interchangeable terms. The Son, then, is begotten from everlasting of himself. For in the one true God no division is possible, and such as the Father is, such is the Son, and further, the Son being the Son, and at the same time identical with his own Father, takes man's nature. Then the Father and the Holy Ghost must also take man's nature, for such as the Son, such is the Father, and such is the Holy Ghost. And God, without body, takes man's body, and without parts, is crucified, and without passions, suffers. But the Son dies to reconcile his Father to us, but he is his Father, and his Father is himself. Can the one living and true God die to reconcile himself to himself, and to offer himself up a sacrifice to himself, to appease his own wrath? The bodiless is nailed on the cross. The impassable suffers, the undying dies. The one God on earth is offered to appease the one God in heaven, and there is but one living and true God. If this be so, either the God in heaven or the God on earth must have been a false God, for there is but one true God, and the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, who must be kept indivisible in thought, hang upon the cross as a sacrifice to the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and cry, being the one true God, to my God, my God, who has forsaken himself. All this to reconcile the Father to us, the Father who is without passions, and who therefore cannot be angry or need reconcilement. As Christ died for us, and was buried, so also it is to be believed that he went down into hell. Down into hell? Which way is down from a round globe? In the ancient conception of the universe the earth was flat, with heaven above and hell underneath. And Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, when the earth opened her mouth, went down quick, alive, into hell. Did Jesus do the same? But hanging on the cross he said to the penitent thief, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Is paradise the same hell? And is heaven identical with both? Jesus ascended, went up, not down, to heaven. If this be so, might not some confusion arise on the way, for a soul starting downwards from Australia on its way to hell might be found soaring upwards from England after a few hours' journey. Are heaven and hell both all round the world, and if so, why is one up and the other down? Rome was right and wise when she set her face sternly against the heliocentric theory. A revolving globe destroys all the old notions of the heaven above, and of the water under the earth, and of hell below, and it was a strong argument against this sphericity of the earth that, in the day of judgment, men on the other side of the globe could not see the Lord descending through the air. 
The fourth article teaches us that Christ took again his body with flesh, bones, and all things appertaining to the perfection of man's nature, wherewith he ascended into heaven, and there sitteth. Body, flesh, bones, and all things appertaining to man's nature, wishes, and appetites, and needs, hearts and lungs, for instance, and he took these beyond the atmosphere, lungs to breathe where no air is, heart to pulse where no oxygen can purify the blood, flesh and bones among pure spirits, the form of man sitting on the throne of God, and this flesh, bones, etc., all one with the indivisible, from the God without body and parts, and Jesus the Son of Mary, the crucified man sitting in his flesh and bones in heaven, not to be separated in thought from the one living and true God without body, parts, or passions. Such is the literal and grammatical sense of the first four articles, and to analyse the fifth of the Holy Ghost would be simply to repeat all that has been said above, since such is the Son, such is the Holy Ghost. May it not justly be said that belief in the Trinity in unity is the negation of thought, and that faith is only possible where reason ends. Article 6 deals with the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for salvation, and lays down the canon that anything not capable of proof from the Bible must not be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. The converse of this proposition, that dogmas that can be proved therefrom are necessary to salvation, is said not to be binding on the Church, and some notable depravers of the Scriptures have successfully slipped through this article. The list of books given, as those of whose authority was never any doubt in the Church, seems open to grave objections, as the authority of many of the books now accounted canonical has been distinctly challenged. The history of Jonah is so monstrous that it is absolutely incredible. Job spake not therefore as it stands written in his book. Isaiah hath borrowed his whole art and knowledge from David. Thus, among many other staid criticisms, wrote Luther. To go further back is to find much sharp challenging. The epistle to the Hebrews is of the most doubtful authenticity. The second epistle of Peter and that of Jude are debatable. The revelation of St. John the Divine was very slowly received, and the two shorter epistles, which bear his name, are dubiously recognised. If only the books are to be received of which there was never any doubt in the church, the canonical list must be shorn of most of its ornaments. When Article 7 tells us that the ceremonial and civil precepts of the Old Testament are not binding upon us, it seems a pity that some test is not given whereby unlearned people may be able to distinguish between the commandments which are called moral and the others. Is the command to persecute non-believers in Jehovah, Deuteronomy 13, 14, 2-7, binding to the day? Is the command to put witches to death, Leviticus 20, 27, binding to day? John Wesley said that belief in witchcraft was incumbent on all those who believed the Bible, and if witchcraft was possible then, why not now? Or has God changed his mind as to the proper method of dealing with such persons? Are the commands enjoining and regulating slavery, Exodus 21, 2-6, and 20, 21, Leviticus 25, 44-46, Deuteronomy 15, 12-18, intended for the guidance of slaveholders today? What is there to make the commandments which are called moral, 
by which we may presume are meant the Ten Commandments, more binding on Christian men than the other parts of the law. The Fourth Commandment is essentially a Jewish one, and is not obeyed among Christians. The Second Commandment is invariably ignored, and the Fifth promises a reward which is not given. The commandments touching murder, adultery, stealing, lying, are not peculiar to the Mosaic Code. They are found in all moral legislation, and are binding, not because taught by Moses or by Buddha, but because their observance is necessary to the existence of society. Of the three creeds of the Church we have already spoken, so pass to Article 9. Of Original or Birth Sin It seems that a fault and corruption of nature are naturally engendered of the offspring of Adam, and that this fault in every person born into the world deserveth God's wrath and damnation. That seems scarcely fair, since the infant's consent is not asked before he is born into the world, and the fault of being born is, therefore, none of his. How, then, can the babe deserve God's wrath and damnation? And seeing that the very next article, 10, informs us that our condition is such that man cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith and calling upon God. It appears terribly unjust that either man or child should be held accursed because they do not do what God has made them incapable of doing. It would be as reasonable to torture a man for not flying without wings as for God to punish man for being born of the race of Adam, and for not turning to God when the power to do so is withheld. For we have no power to do good works without the grace of God by Christ. And when that grace is not given, we lie helpless and strengthless, unable to do right. Nor can any deed of ours make us fit recipients of the grace of God, for, Article 13, works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of his Spirit are not pleasant to God, neither do they make men meet to receive grace, yea, rather, for that they are not done as God hath willed and commanded them to be done, we doubt not but that they have the nature of sin. So that if a good and noble heathen, who has never heard of Christ, and whose good deeds cannot therefore spring of faith in Jesus Christ, does some high-minded action, or shows some kindly charity, his good deeds are of the nature of sin, and in fact make him rather worse off than he was before. As Melanchthon said, his virtues are only splendid vices, because done without faith in a person of whom he has never heard. For, Article 18, they are to be accursed that presume to say that every man shall be saved by the law or sect which he professeth, so that he be diligent to frame his life according to that law, and the light of nature. We are accounted righteous before God. Article 11 only for the merit of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ by faith, and not for our own works and deservings. Thus we learn that God cares not for righteousness of life, but only for blind faith, and that he sends us out into a world lying under his curse, without any chance of salvation, except by attaining a faith which he gives or withholds at his pleasure, and which we can of ourselves do nothing to deserve, much less to obtain. To crown this beautiful theory we learn, Article 17, of predestination and election. Predestination to life, it seems, is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby, before the foundations of the world were laid, he hath constantly decreed by his counsel, secret to us, to deliver from curse and damnation 
those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind, and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation, as vessels made to honour. But if this be true, man has no choice of any kind in the matter, for not only is grace to do right the gift of God, but man's acceptance of the gift is also compulsory. God has arranged, before he made the world, how many and whom he will save. What then becomes of man's boasted free will? Before the creation God drew the plan of every human life, and as the potter moulds the ductile clay into the shape he desires, so God moulds his human pottery, after his own will, into vessels made to salvation, or made to dishonour. To talk of man's freedom is a mockery. What freedom had Adam and Eve in paradise? They might have stood, nay, for was not the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Before the sin was committed, God had made the atonement for it. If Adam were free not to sin, then it would be possible that he might not have sinned, and then God would have offered a needless sacrifice, and would have a saviour with no one to save, so that it would have been necessary to provide a sinner in order to utilise the sacrifice. All idea of justice is here hideously impossible. God has predestinated some human beings out of mankind. These, in due season, he calls, through grace they obey the calling, they be justified freely, and at length, by God's mercy, they attain to everlasting felicity. And the rest, those who are not predestined, those who are not called, those to whom no grace is given, those who are not justified freely, those who have no God's mercy to aid them, what of them? Made by God, the creatures of his hand, the vessels of his moulding, the clay of his shaping, are they cast into the lake of brimstone, into the fire that never shall be quenched, simply because God in his sovereignty put them unconscious under his curse and left them there, adding to the cruelty of creation the more savage cruelty of preservation? No, whether such deeds should be wrought by God or man, they would be wickedly wrong. Almighty power is no excuse for crime, and the God of the Articles of the Church of England is a gigantic criminal, who uses his almightiness to make life that he may torment it, and to create sentient beings, foredoomed to the bitterest agony, to keenest woe. Such frightful misuse of power can only meet with strongest reprobation from all moral beings. Unlimited power, turned to evil purposes, may trample upon and crush us into helplessness, but it can never force us to worship, nor compel us to adore. These first eighteen articles of the Church may be said to contain the more salient points of the Church's teachings, and it is needless to point out the utter impossibility of reasonable and gentle-hearted men and women believing in the plan of salvation sketched out in them. They are instinct with the cruel theology of Calvin and Zwingli, and imply, though they do not so plainly word, the view of the Lambeth Articles of 1595, that God from eternity hath predestinated certain men unto life, certain he hath reprobated. These Anglican articles must be taken as teaching predestination to damnation, as well as to salvation, since those not called to life must inevitably fall to death. The next section, so to speak, of the articles deals with church affairs defining the authority of churches and of councils, and explaining the doctrine of the sacraments. It is with these that the High Church partly chiefly falls out, for the twenty-first article, 
acknowledging that general councils may err, and have erred, strikes at the root of the infallibility of the Church universal, so dear to the priestly soul. The articles on the sacraments also tend somewhat to the low church view of them, and dwell more on the faith of the recipient than on the consecration of the priest. The article 33, levelled against excommunicate persons, commanding that such a one shall be taken of the whole multitude of the faithful as an heathen and publican until he be openly reconciled by penance, is duly believed and subscribed by clergymen, but has no real meaning today. If the thirty-fifth article were acted upon, some curiosities of English literature would enliven the churches, for this article bids the clergy read the homilies, we judge them to be read in churches by the ministers, diligently and distinctly, that they may be understanded of the people. It is really a pity that this direction is not carried out, for some of the barbarous doctrines of popular Christianity would then be seen as they are described by men who thoroughly believed in them instead of being known only as they are presented to us to-day, with some of their deformity hidden under the robes woven for them by modern civilization, wherein humanity has outgrown the old Christianity, and men's reason chastens their faith. The last three articles touch on civil matters, acknowledging the royal supremacy, and dealing with other matters pertaining to Caesar, but on the borderland between him and God. Such are the articles of the Church, believed by few, unknown to many, winked at by all, because religion is practically a matter of indifference to most, and while custom and fashion enforce conformity with the Church, the brain troubles not itself to analyse the claim, or to weigh the conditions of allegiance. Men have become so sceptical as to regard all creeds with indifference, and the half-conceived unbelief of the clergy, sighing with mental reservations, and formally asserting belief where the thought and lips are at variance, appears to have eaten the heart out of all religious honesty in England, and men lie to God, who would revolt at lying to man. If belief in the Articles is now a thing of the past, then the Articles should also pass away. If churchmen have outgrown these dogmas, why do they suffer them to deface their prayer-book, to barb the shafts of the sceptic, and to give power to the sneer of the scoffer? End of chapter 24